1: Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 160, Once and Future King. As the summer months grew hotter, and both parties knew that they were running out of time, in France, Henry began to gather his forces in preparation for an August campaign. In England, Richard had moved to Nottingham and had also begun preparations from the center of the country, the aim being, of course, to centralize his command structure and to gain control on the problem before it starts. One aspect of his summer in Nottingham was for Richard to bring the great seal of government with him. This seal, of course, was used on official documents and represented as effectively making whatever was written a legal document, be it for any type of martial call or tax-related issue. The king would need it ahead of the war against the Tudor pretender. In the steps to war, both sides knew that they had to get this right and that they would have to do what they could if they were going to win. Both Richard and Henry, of course, were writing as if they were king. Henry made no bones about that. He would send letters out as if he was the king and writing as if he was representing the king, something that is important in his claims to authority and claims to the throne. Of course, with all this in mind, as the character Baldrick once said in the programme Blackadder, for both of them were not home to Mr. Cockup. At least that was the hope for both of these sides. During the beginning of summer, the last French distraction had come to an end when the leadership in Brittany were once again overthrown. Pierre Landis, the first minister and chief adviser to the ailing Duke Francis, an erstwhile ally to King Richard, found himself with a few friends as the French threw their support behind the rebels led by Anne of Beaujeu, to take back control of Brittany. They would then, after having done so, torture and then execute Landis. With the death of Landis, and no war on the horizon, the French became much more firm in their support of Henry, from simple financial support to actual men and material. A French mercenary force, fresh from wars against various enemies in Europe, were now called on to help with the financial backing of Charles VIII and friends of Henry. Some considered these particular mercenaries the dregs of humanity and unprepared and unready and unwilling to fight unless money was involved, but all of that aside, they were still an important addition to what Henry needed and became a significant portion of his soldiers. Another welcome arrival in the summer was John Morgan, a messenger from home who gave Henry the news that he hoped for and needed he confirmed that Sir Rhys Thomas and Sir John Savage were both supportive of endeavors. Savage was a Yorkist who had supported Edward in the battles throughout the War of the Roses, and of course, Savage was also related to the Stanleys, so had links to Henry's stepfather. Rhys, on the other hand, was a Lancastrian through and through, whose father had fought for Henry VI and Jasper Tudor in the 1460s. While Reese was a loyalist to the Tudors. It was mostly to them and not necessarily the Lancastrian cause that convinced him to be supportive of them. At least that was the perception that Henry and others had been given. Rhys himself had been a supporter of the king currently, Richard, and had been seen as being a part of those loyal to him. Reese, in fact, had avoided getting involved in the Buckingham Revolt two years previously, and because of this, became tied to both sides. This meant for him, much like many others, his loyalties were definitely split, and this would become an issue for Henry Tudor, as this Welshman would play a key role in the battles to come for the kingdom. But even as this big news was carried by Morgan, there was one other significant bit of information. That was the report of Reginald Bray, the servant of Margaret Beaufort that we had mentioned previously, had found the financial wherewithal to gain income enough to pay all the wages of the troops at Henry's call. Morgan also called on Henry to take and make for Wales immediately. So, as Richard received the great seal in Nottingham, Henry Tudor, and his mix of French mercenaries, Lancastrian loyalists, and Yorkist rebels, entered French ships at Herefler and made their way to Wales, some of, with the promise of revenge, some with the promise of glory and money, but all dedicated to one cause to see Henry take the throne. The arrival of the future king was not met with heralds or fawning crowds, or even crowds at all. On August 7th, Thirty ships of his flotilla landed in a bay in the far southwest tip of Wales, in a place called Mill Bay. The bay was fairly small, and even today features more cows than people, and little or nothing around it other than the village of Dale a few miles to the north. The pleasant rolling hills acted as shadows for the ships as they arrived just before dawn, landing unopposed in an area which would have been familiar to the Tudors, as it was a part of an area previously controlled by Jasper in years past. The castle watchman back at Dale would, within hours, know what happened, but it would be August 11th before Richard and his forces knew of the landing back in Nottingham. Henry Tudor arrived back in the country of his ancestor's birth after a decade as a virtual prisoner in Brittany and a prize in France. Finally, in Wales he was at home. It was hard to know at this point just what Henry saw of Wales in himself. Whether he saw anything at all would be an obvious question. Henry was born in Pembroke, but lived an English childhood, and a French culture had made a deep impression upon him. Most of his cultural understanding came from his time as a teen in Brittany, and later in life it would make up a great deal of how his court looked and acted while he was king. No one knows if Henry even spoke or understood Welsh. The assumption is he didn't. During this period, being Welsh was not an advantage to the upper class or even to the merchant class, so much as we have pointed out in previous episodes, many tried to get themselves legally named English. Many avoided or altogether threw aside speaking Welsh as a first language. Today, in an era where people would take pride in knowing Welsh or learning it, it may be harder to understand that sentiment, but it was very strong and very common in this period. Henry's biggest influence on his life was Jasper Tudor. He was likely the one constant he had near him for at least the majority of his life. The love and desire of his mother also was never far from him, but she physically was not. Neither of these most influential people were Welsh speakers. Jasper may have learned of necessity in later life, but living in England for his childhood, it would have likely never allowed him to learn it properly. Southwest Wales, and especially in the Marcher areas like Pembroke, were dominated by English towns and settlements, and most of all, the language of English was spoken there for centuries. While it might be noble to think of this holding out of the Welsh language in the south, it was likely only spoken in the homes of peasants and local people who had no stake in the war. The reality of Henry, regardless of what the bards say, was not really a new Welsh hope for independence, and few saw him as that anyway. Henry himself is said to have sent blessings to the patron saint of England, George, for his safe arrival, rather than to Saint David, whose former church he was just south of. Yet, even with this thin linkage and lineage, the appeal went out for the people of Wales to join him. As mentioned previously, he mentioned their suffering as part of his request for their assistance to help alleviate all the problems and stop the suffering and to free them from the bondage that they had been held in. In other words, playing to the crowd. He also rolled out one of his banners, which if we looked at it today, would seem very familiar. The white and green banner that featured a red dragon emblazoned in the center in honor of his Welsh ancestry was, of course, a potent symbol even back then. A symbol of Cadwalder, a symbol of Welsh conquering the English, British triumph over Saxons, It was, needless to say, something of a sign of what he wanted while he carried the cross of St. George, in that it was an image of someone uniting the kingdom. Meanwhile, the French fleet left shortly after, leaving Henry and his thousands of troops to make their way north. Hiking up the path from the beach, the Tudor forces arrived in Dale later on the 7th, after a... Escalation up the cliffside effectively to get away from the beach because it was quite the hike. Even today, if you look at it, you can see the cliff edges are quite a ways up. The village and castle were very easily dealt with and taken by Henry. They then spent the night there before continuing north once again. It is at this point that Henry's chroniclers and companions note that French soldiers were ill equipped. And few knew how to use ranged weapons, which seems odd, as at the same time it was reported that they had taken crossbowmen and archers, among other pikemen and halberdiers. If the French soldiers didn't understand how to use these weapons, it would be very confusing, and they wouldn't be very good mercenaries, to be blunt. The French soldiers were seen as refuse of men, as I mentioned earlier, rather than proper soldiers. Yet at the same time, they made up a large percentage of the army that Henry had at hand, so he couldn't exactly take them for granted. As the Welsh contingent and French forces aligned, it was obvious that old animosities built up over the centuries were not going to suddenly disappear. Whether the French were as bad as proposed in the circumstances was difficult to say. Regardless, Henry soon split his forces. Broccolini and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash Welsh History Pod fifty and use the code Welsh History Pod fifty to get fifty percent off your first month plus plus twenty percent off your next month. That's code Welsh History Pod fifty at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. It was around then that concerns arose around the motives of Rhys Ap Thomas and John Savage. Promised initially as loyalists to Henry's cause, now they seemed to both backtrack. Ap Thomas, with Walter Herbert, had brought his own contingents of troops to Camarthen, rumored to be under Richard's orders, apparently to shadow Henry and to stop him where they could. Though at this point, the king doesn't not even know about the invasion, so it's difficult to say whether he had issued these orders or if they were carrying out on their own accord. Also worryingly, the finances critical to the campaign had not arrived, which, of course, would create more issues when you have paid mercenaries. If they did not arrive, his mercenary army would likely go their own way and create even more havoc for Henry than for Richard. Henry, on the 8th of August, took a coastal route from Haverford West to Cardigan, and north eventually towards Aberystwyth. Along the way, Henry sent notes to the local nobility trying to rouse them to join him in their cause. While initially the flow of defectors started as a trickle, many in Pembroke did eventually come to Henry's side, as long as he promised clemency for earlier actions that they had taken, of course some of which fought against his uncle, booting him out of his position there. All the while, Reese and Henry played cat and mouse as they headed up the southwest portions of Wales. Effectively, with Reese shadowing him the entire way, Some academics have suggested that Henry may have hoped that by delaying in Wales he would gain the support of the Stanleys, who still controlled much of North Wales and some of the marches. While his stepfather had possibly been inwardly as supportive, he was still a powerful man, known to play his cards close to the vest. He was not going to outwardly show anything in case he needed to protect himself, even if that meant harming his wife." Though in saying that, it wasn't like he was going to offer much in the way to Richard either. When the king summoned him to Nottingham after learning of Henry's landing, Thomas begged forgiveness, but said he couldn't attend as he was now very sick. Something that must have left the king very suspicious of his powerful lord's loyalty. Part of Thomas's reluctance may have also been because of his son, George Strange, who had been caught and imprisoned by the king, to ensure good conduct by Thomas. Knowing his son and heir was at the mercy of Richard likely made him think twice about taking a risk. Also, George had sent letters to his father of his plight, calling for him to be loyal. It might have had the opposite effect of pushing Thomas over the edge, combined with the fact that uh, the king had tortured his son probably didn't make him any more willing to come to his aid. William Stanley, brother of Thomas, had no such restrictions on his position, and as he and John Savage were declared traitors by Richard, something that left him with little choice but to seek to support Henry. For Henry, the due tour up the coast to the north might have had another purpose, to stir up common support from the people in the principality who might see the Cadwaller banner as his sign both as a powerful Welsh lord, but also as a new Welsh king of England. Our king on the English throne, you might say. It may have been a tool to stir up the Welsh people to action as well, as if that was the case, then Henry's next step was one of rousing that support in the most nationalistic way possible. Henry's forces marched to Machanthleth, the site of one of Oinglindur's parliaments, and touchstone of Welsh aims for independence. To me, it's obvious what Henry was aiming to do here. He was equating himself with Glyndwr, reaching out to the population that still held the old language and the old ways and may have been hesitant to follow him. They were the ones who would likely find sympathy with a Welshman, no matter how tenuous, seeking to pull down the English. Yes, there were other reasons he was there. Yes, it was the convenient access point to head east, but why stop there and stop there for days if not to signal a certain indication to allow himself to display himself as the obvious heir of Glyndur? Why would he do that? To me, thats it's all part of the makeup of what Henry was doing in Wales. It was all about building on past allegiances first, and then building on those who would have the most grievance towards the current king, while, of course, ignoring the linkage between Henry IV and his own lineage. As Henry reached Aberystwyth on the 12th, about the same time that Richard started to move against him— He defeated a small force of defenders rather easily and prepared his move eastward in short order. He knew that he needed to deal with whatever Reese and Walter Herbert were doing to the east of him. Reese had claimed after the fact that he was effectively playing for time by deceiving Richard into a false sense of security while gathering men and drip-feeding defectors to Henry's camp to make it easier to join when the time came. The idea being is that these defectors would pave the road for him by saying that Reese is really with him, but there is some doubts here, let's be honest. At the same time, there is no way to corroborate nor denigrate his position, which sounds like after-the-fact rewriting of history, but this is his contention of what he was doing. He had gathered about 2,000 soldiers from across southern Wales on the march north, and now had a formidable force when Henry camped at Aberystwyth. As Henry went east and arrived in the aforementioned Machantleth, site of such importance and significance, he had to stop. From there he sent more letters to more nobles, both threatening and cajoling them to join him, to show their support for their true king as he would have seen it. It was now obvious that he had crossed the Rubicon, and he needed to deal with the one force that was in his way. He had to deal with Rhys Aptomus. Thomas wanted specifics in order to offer his support to Henry. He was not any more a loyalist than most of the rest of the nobility was across England and Wales. He was simply an opportunist. And Because of that, he was not going to do this for a freebie. He was not going to suddenly become a loyal Lancastrian follower of Henry just because he wanted to secure both his wealth and power going forward. So Henry did what someone would do in that circumstance when you really don't have a reason to cause a grievance and you're dealing with someone who has a large portion of soldiers standing in front of you. Henry offered him the position of Chamberlain of South Wales. On that bargain, which was a significant one, Rhys and his 2,000 soldiers fell in line. On August seventeenth, 1485, at Kiffindigal, also known as the Long Mountain near Welshpool, the two sides gathered as one. This was a site of major significance both to Wales and to Henry himself, because it was here, where King Cadwallon and his ally Penda, defeated Edwin of Northumbria and prepared the way for what would then be one of the biggest victories for a king of Gwynedd in the early portions of British history. So thus, at this significant location, at this most significant time, Henry, always ever able to use a bit of propaganda when needed made sure that this significant event happened at this most significant place, this idea, this bringing together of two different Welsh sides as allies to fight against another English king. And so, the East Way was finally open to Henry, and he would now begin his final journey across Mid-Wales and into history. With that ado, I'd like to thank you for listening. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can always follow me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook. You can join us there at Facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. And if you're interested in helping out with our Patreon fundraising, Uh, you can do so there at uh, patreon.com forward slash Welsh history. I always appreciate any donations and uh, they go a long way to helping me purchase the books I need to research and develop these scripts. Thank you everyone for listening. I hope you have a great day and uh, we'll talk to you later. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com.